ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast, hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers, and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with a single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hi there, I'm Laura Rossbrotellum, and this is Foreign Policy Playlist. Each week, we help you try and make sense of all the podcasts out there by recommending one podcast we like from somewhere around the world. This week, we wanted to share a new podcast called Voices of Ukraine. It's from Columbia University's Harriman Institute, their Center for Russian, Eurasian, and East European Studies. Each episode focuses on one voice of Ukraine, capturing a lot about this unique period of time. Before we get to today's featured episode, Masha Yudinseva Brenner sat down with Playlist to talk about the episode and how the series came to be. Voices of Ukraine is a new podcast that was founded right after Russia invaded Ukraine. At the Harriman Institute, we study Russia, Eurasia, and Eastern Europe. So we have a lot of community members who are connected to Ukraine or even in Ukraine. And I was hearing a lot of stories and I wanted to capture those stories. So the idea was a sort of time capsule in a way Mm -hmm. where I interviewed folks who were on the ground and folks who are here, who have family on the ground, uh, whose lives have been upended by this war. So I did a flurry of interviews in the first I think my first one was exactly a week after the war started. And then the first couple of weeks, I did a ton of interviews. And those were the first five episodes were kind of these narrative stories. And then we have a student, an MA candidate, Lily Bivings, who's at the Institute, who's also a contributing editor at the KU Independent. And so The next thing we did was a series where she conducted interviews with the editor-in-chief and the deputy chief editor about what their experiences were like covering the war. Since the Harriman Institute, and you're all very connected with people in Ukraine or who are Ukrainian or who are in Russia, what did you feel like you were hearing from people on the ground that wasn't getting traction in the media? You know, these were just very personal stories. So a lot of it was stuff that was already in the media. One thing that's been really interesting from talking to a lot of people on the ground in Ukraine is just how convinced people are, how convinced folks are that they're going to win. Even though there's fear and terror and shock, there's also this unity and this optimism that people share. 
that's definitely something that struck me while doing the podcast. You know, people saying when we win and when this is over and how we're going to rebuild and the ability of, of folks to hold on to optimism and positivity and even to live some shred of their lives, even though their lives have been completely taken over and, and it feels like futures have been robbed from them. Yeah, what's what's been the biggest surprise for you in making the show? The biggest surprise for me has been this kind of magnetism that Ukraine has for folks who study it or have ended up there or Ukrainians who grew up here and ended up going back to Ukraine. I personally haven't been there since I was a kid. There's something that people are very passionate about even way before the war about Ukraine being this kind of incredible place with so much opportunity and you know, in spite of all the corruption that happens there, because that's a very real thing and, and instability, there is this love for Ukraine that I've seen but not been immersed in until I started doing the podcast. And I mean, I'm curious, you know, since, you know, your family came from Russia, I mean, what's that been like also viewing this as a Russian? Well, as a Russian, I came from Moscow when I was a little kid. I was eight years old. It was the very end of the Soviet Union. And I have memories when I was a small child of my mom's aunt, who's from Kyiv, coming and staying with us in the aftermath of Chernobyl. So my family has, you know, there was always this feeling of closeness. And then when this happened, and it was just so shocking and so horrendous and and awful. I mean, I spent, before I started this podcast, the podcast saved me because I was just sitting and bawling for days. I couldn't sleep. I was having panic attacks. And even though I didn't grow up in Russia and I'm a journalist and everything I cover has been anti-regime, anti-Putin. I do a lot of work about exiles and LGBTQIA folks from there. I just, there's this feeling of of like shame and guilt that I, that it was really hard to shake, even though I didn't put Putin in power. I wasn't even there, but you know, when I started doing the podcast, I was a little nervous, honestly, being someone who's from Russia, how folks would interact with me. I mean, some of them, I know personally, some of the people I've spoken to in the, in the podcast, but there's still that nervousness and this guilt but everyone's been extremely lovely and kind and uh, happy to have their stories heard. And I really think these stories, these personal stories are so important because hearing someone's voice and the emotion in their voice telling you about what they're going through is very different than just reading something in the media. And talking to people so early in the war, I think was really important too because I was able to capture this sort of raw emotion that, as I did some later interviews, wasn't present anymore. Because, of course, no one ever gets used to war, but you do have to adapt and you have to kind of temper your emotions in a way that I think in the first weeks of the war, people weren't doing. So yeah, and so this brings us to the episode that you're gonna hear 
It's an interview with KU Independence main editor, Olga Rudenko, and this lovely woman named Lily interviews her, who both is a contributor to the KU Independent, but also is at Columbia. I guess I just, you know, wanted a sense from you for people who are about to listen to the episode, maybe things to like watch out for. Uh, I was really struck by her description of evacuating and being, she was in KU when the invasion started and said that the explosions were terrifying, obviously. And then she went to a safer place in the West, which she felt very conflicted about. And she felt a lot of guilt because when you're in safety and you know that the rest of your country is at war, it was a very striking feeling for her. And what struck me was that she said she felt almost a relief when they started getting air raid sirens in the town that she was in because yeah. reality felt more solid around her. So that was probably kind of the most poignant moment in the podcast for me. And well, any any last thoughts? Um, well, my hope and my dream is that as this war recedes from the headlines, that people keep listening and hearing these stories because it's really important to understand that this is still happening. And just because it's not at the forefront in the same way that it was in the beginning, that doesn't make it any less real. That was Masha Yudinseva Brenner. And now here's the episode from Voices of Ukraine. I did not believe it at first. I thought I was misreading something. And there it was, the special citation for the journals of Ukraine. And I remember just looking for a long time at the words. Earlier this week, the board of the Pulitzer Prizes, the top journalism prize in the U.S., gave a special citation to Ukraine's journalists, noting their courage, endurance, and commitment to truthful reporting about the war in their country. It was very meaningful to me because the journalists in Ukraine are doing incredible work right now, being at the epicenter of this crisis, putting their feelings and their emotions away to keep doing this job. This is Voices of Ukraine, a podcast from the Harriman Institute at Columbia University. I'm Masha Udenseva-Brenner, the Institute's media manager. And the voice you just heard is a 33-year-old Ukrainian journalist and editor who's been on the ground doing this job since the war started. My name is Olga Rudenko, and I'm the editor-in-chief of the Kyiv Independent. If you've been following the war, you've probably heard of the KU Independent. It's an English-language Ukrainian news site with a huge following. And though what you just heard was recorded yesterday, today you'll be hearing a conversation with Olga that took place much earlier in the war, and it gets deep into the experience that she just described putting your feelings away to keep reporting on a war unfolding in your own country. But first, I want to introduce our guest interviewer, who will be with us for the next few episodes. My name is Lily Bivings. I'm currently a master's student at Columbia's Harriman Institute, and I am a contributing editor for the Kiev Independent. Lily is a close friend of Olga Rudenko's, they met last year when they were both working at another English-language site, the Kiyu Post, where Olga was deputy chief editor. 
At the time, the post was a big deal. It was, since the mid-90s, the largest, most read English language newspaper in Ukraine. The post was read primarily by the international community, government officials, foreign journalists, NGO workers, anyone who wanted to get an accurate picture about what was going on in Ukraine. But then everything changed. Last fall, the oligarch who owned the post fired everyone without notice. It appears that the owner, Adnan Kivan, was essentially fed up with the journalists for defending their editorial independence. Reportedly, he was pressured by the government of Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky because it didn't like the paper's critical coverage. Zelensky's administration was not very friendly to journalists. It was no secret that people didn't love the Kyiv Post for their coverage of corruption and of officials and of the government. Of course, it's hard to say, but certainly seems that may have had something to do with it. Many of the fired staff banded together and decided to create a new site and call it KU Independent. This was last November. At that point, Lily was already studying full-time in New York, and Olga was in Chicago on fellowship, hoping to take a sabbatical from journalism. But when her colleagues asked her to lead the KU Independent, Olga couldn't say no. And Lily, who was in grad school full-time, started helping out too, by editing the new site's daily newsletter. Then, after Russia invaded Ukraine in February, Lily's former colleagues needed all the help they could get, and she became an editor again, studying by day and working for KU Independent by night. Oh, and just so there's no confusion, Lily's not Ukrainian. She fell in love with Ukraine when she served in the Peace Corps there four years ago, and she's planning to spend the rest of her life there, by whatever means possible. What follows is an edited and condensed version of a conversation Lily had with Olga over Zoom two weeks after Russia invaded Ukraine. At the time, Kyiv was under heavy bombardment, and Olga was in western Ukraine. Actually, like, wanted to talk about Kyiv independent. You know, what, what was it like before? What were you guys covering before the, the full invasion started? Oh, well, I can hardly remember now. It seems like it's been ages, and it's only been really two weeks. Well, obviously, in the several weeks right before the invasion, we did focus a lot on security issues because there were these constant reports that the invasion is imminent, it's going to happen, you know, this Wednesday or this Sunday. By the time it actually happened, it was almost like the uh, boy who cried wolf. We were almost too tired from, you know, so many warnings and thinking that it won't actually happen, and then it happened. By the time the war started, it was still very startupish. I, I really wanted to build the right culture in the company. And all that went to hell because there's no culture building anymore, there's no business coverage anymore, there's no politics coverage anymore. There's just this horrible war and everybody is, in, is, is a war reporter in the newsroom. You know, the, the two, two lifestyle reporters that we had, one is covering uh, refugees and the war and, and uh, the second one has actually joined the Territorial Defense Force and is defending the country. So that's how everything was turned upside down for us. I wanted to talk a little bit about the sort of meteoric rise of Kiev independence since the start of Russia's full-scale invasion. It's so exciting, obviously, to jump from 20,000 followers to almost 2 million 
to get recognized by every major outlet, to get all of the compliments from everyone all over the world. But the reason why that's happening is obviously tragic. And I think we all wish wasn't the reason why we're getting this kind of success. Yes. You know, just a month ago, this this kind of numbers seemed so far away for us. But it's it's all very, very bittersweet. Obviously, the reason why we have this kind of fellowship and this kind of recognition is because our country, which we all care so deeply about, is uh, going through, through this horrible, horrible war. And I would happily trade all the success that we had for there being no war. And I'd be happy to live in a boring, boring Ukraine. And I'd be happy if my only struggle was how to stay afloat as a media startup and how to find money. I said to someone the other day, I was like, it's crazy that at one point the most stressful thing was Thursday night's Keith post. And I'd love to just go back to those days where we came into work late on Fridays. We drank wine in the office late at night after we were done. Yeah, in in retrospective, it's also so easy, so simple, so well, peaceful. One of the things I would always tell people about why I love Ukraine so much. It's just, it's so laid back there. And I don't mean laid back in this dismissive way of not being hardworking or responsible, but in a sort of deeper, more philosophical way and like an attitude towards life. It's hard to kind of even grasp the reality of what's happening and and to tie it into the news that we're reporting. People ask me all the time, how are you feeling? How are you doing? And I'm like, I don't really have time to think about it. I mean, I'm also not there, right? You just said, you know, I'm not even there. I think it might be even harder for people who are not here to cope with this because that just adds some additional level of absurdity. Look at the look at the news, you're into it for hours and hours and then you go out to the street and it's, it's also normal. And I think that th- this contrast can really take a toll on you, you know, mentally. That's what happened to me one day after the war started. I left Kiev and I went to a safer location in western Ukraine. For the first first couple of days, I I thought I was going insane. I thought I was going mad. Just the the crazy contrast of how peaceful the streets were. How there was like almost no sign of that this is the same country that is at war right now. How that contrasted with what I was doing all day, looking at the news, editing the news, writing the news the shelling, the tragedies, people in bomb shelters. And then, you know, I woke up from my computer and it's also normal around me. Literally, what was going on around you? Like, what were people doing? It's it's, it's a very small town. I, I mean, I haven't had a chance to walk around that much. I think a couple of streets is like almost the whole town. A lot of places are closed, some cafes and shops, but most of them are open, actually, and most of them are working and... I spent a lot of time working in a, in a restaurant at a ho- hotel nearby. It has a, a big restaurant with a good internet connection, uh, the best one that I could find here so far. So, so I spent like, most of my days there working. Um, and it's, um, it's a spa hotel, and it's full now of people who fled, I think, mostly Kiev. There's a, there's a pool and uh, uh, like an indoor pool for you know, families with children swim there. No alcohol, of course, because it's bad now, but it's, you know, it's also normal. It's almost like a resort. It's almost like a vacation. That hit me really badly in the first several days. I looked around me and I thought, this is, this is too good. This is too comfortable. 
like I feel horrible for being here. And then, you know, a couple of days after I arrived, the first, uh, the first air raid alert happened here. And it's a horrible and very silly thing to say, maybe, but I was almost relieved that this is like, you know, the reality is becoming more, more solid around me. You're listening to Foreign Policy Playlist. We'll be right back. My name's Kurt Jaimungo, and this is the Theories of Everything podcast, the show where we bring rigor to mathematics, physics, and consciousness, exploring grand unified theories, as well as free will and God, even exploring aliens with former CIA Lou Elizondo, heated debates on metaphysics with Kastrup and Verveke. Imagine you are an organism that spans a galaxy. How does the universe look to you? Type in Theories of Everything on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, all platforms. I know that why you would feel it, of course, it makes perfect sense, but the people that love you and care about you are so happy that you are safe. And so you're kind of doing a service for other people too, when you get yourself to safety or if you can get yourself to safety, you know. It kind of got a little easier because I think I just started thinking more practically and realizing that that by being here, I can be useful and uh, I can do more work and I'd be probably virtually useless if I stayed in Kiev because I would have to go to the subway, which was the bomb shelter that was available to me. And there was no internet connection and I would be, you know, offline for big chunks of the day. And my apartment is not safe. There is something that everybody in Ukraine knows now, which is called the rule of two walls. You know what the rule of two walls is? No, explain it. There have to be two walls between you and the street which is why people who don't go to bomb shelters, who stay in their apartments, and when there is uh, a threat of shelling, they stay either in the corridor or in the bathroom. And uh, my apartment, it's a, it's, it's a very small apartment. There is no place where there can be two walls between you and the street. I never really thought of what it is like to live in a city under airstrikes things that you read about in, uh, in the books about London Blitz. You know, would I be scared or not? But I was honestly so scared when I heard the, the explosions over Kyiv when it all started. I couldn't have guessed that I would be so scared of hearing that. Several days after I left Kyiv, I actually bought a train ticket back, which I hoped to be able to use in a couple of days. It made me feel good to have the ticket. But then the, the Russians hit the TV tower in Kiev, and that's very close to my place. And I thought, first of all, I easily could have been near the tower and be among the several people who were killed there. And secondly, I'd be probably paralyzed for maybe the whole day. I, I don't know. What I'm trying to say is, while it's absolutely horrible to watch it, it's also, I think, making it a little easier to justify you know, not being there. I think, you know, a lot of people want to stay. They want to stay in, in these parts because they it's their home or they want to report on it or something. But ultimately, like, you know. You know what I also noticed? I also, I also noticed this thing. It happens to many people, especially people who are a little older than us. They stubbornly don't want to leave their homes even when it gets really dangerous. And they are never able to give a reason. 
it's like a stupor. There's something fatalistic about it. My 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 parents had this too. Like I, I'm I'm now in a very intense negotiation trying to make them leave for safe allocation. They just want to stay there. You're facing the prospect of death, but instead of running, you just freeze and you look it in the eyes. You know. I think some people maybe just like their brain isn't really registering it, and they think it's not going to happen to them or it, it may be connected to what you said earlier about the kind of laid back peaceful vibe that ukraine has it's almost like it it's rooted in the same place i don't know it's like um it's the come what my attitude a lot of characteristics of ukrainians and ukrainian society are really like coming to the forefront that's what's been cool for me i've been trying to tell people for years the things that the world is now seeing about ukrainians and no one has believed me do you feel triumphant now exactly i'm vindicated it's amazing to watch ukrainians unite around this and to fight back and to be pretty successful in, in not letting their country fall thus far but it's also just so annoying to me that Ukraine has, had, like, has to fight for its existence so much and to, to at such a large cost. It's the, the injustice of it is frustrating. I understand what you what you're saying about injustice of having to fight for for your right to exist, but also it's uh, every time you're picking up a fight like that, you're kind of finding very something very important. It's like something crystallizes, something is becoming more more clear to you about who you are, about your identity. I don't think it's an exaggeration or romanticizing to say that this is like part of this struggle to become the country that it wants to become. And it has, it unfortunately, you know, I guess has to go through these things to solidify the country it wants to be and to pursue the dreams that it has for itself as a country. Again, again, this is something I, I read online. Uh, don't remember who said it, but it seems like Russia is at war with itself right now. I mean, even though they're not showing their own cities, they're destroying something very, very important about their nation. By, you know, doing this crime that, that is a, a collective crime. I don't think that this is, it, it, it's Putin to blame for it. I think it's uh, the whole Russia to blame for it. I mean, whatever happens, whatever happens next in terms of, you know, the, the battles and uh, which cities are taken, which cities are liberated, we are winning it. It's like an ultimate test that the, the nation is taking and we are nailing the test. I don't know if I'm, my mind is just telling me to tell myself that this will be over soon and this summer we'll all be back in Kiev going to like our favorite bars and cafes and going to the beach and hanging out and these, you know, long summer nights, like just to make myself feel better. And I've thought about it a lot and I'm like, no, but I really believe that. Um trying not to think that this is probably what people who left uh, Donetsk and Luhansk told themselves in 2014. But I'm always a, uh, a naive romantic optimist. Maybe it won't be the same, you know, the same city. Of course it won't be the same city. It will forever be transformed. But it doesn't mean that it will, it will be worse. It will still be our Kiev and we will all go back. We will walk and laugh and uh, just be happy. I, I don't see it happening. I don't see Kiev being gone. In early April, a few weeks after Olga and Lily spoke, Russian forces retreated from KU. 
Olga went back to the capital and is still there. She continues to stay, even though the occasional missile still hits the city, and in late April, Vera Hiric, a producer at Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty in KU, was killed by a Russian strike on a residential block. Olga's parents, who live in central Ukraine, never did leave their home. KU Independent is continuing to grow. They now have 2.1 million followers on Twitter, and four of its journalists made it onto Forbes' 30 under 30 list this month. One of them, Toma Istomina, will be on the show next week for another interview with Lily. As the war drags on, Lily says that the optimism she and Olga were feeling during that early conversation has turned into a bit of hopelessness. We know that Ukraine will win, she says, but it's hard to say when, and not knowing is hard. Lily and all the staff at Kiyu Independent are exhausted. But at least the Pulitzer citation has been a bit of a morale booster. I'd be remiss not to mention that Ukrainian journalists do have some issues with the wording, because the citation refers to Russia's war as Vladimir Putin's war. Here's Olga again. We in Ukraine know that it is not Vladimir Putin's war, it is Russia's war. There are tens of thousands of people who are participating, and it is shown by independent polling that Russians overwhelmingly support the war. So calling it Putin's war is just is just plain wrong. I think it's diminishing the scale of this tragedy. So that was unfortunate that the Pulitzer Prize people chose that language to describe what is going on. If you're looking for ways to support the people of Ukraine, please consider donating to razumforukraine.org. That's R-A-Z-O-M for Ukraine.org. It was founded in 2014 in the wake of Ukraine's Revolution of Dignity by Dora Komiak, who's on the Harriman Institute's National Advisory Council. The organization has been working directly with volunteers in Ukraine to provide emergency relief where it's needed most. Thank you for listening to Voices of Ukraine from the Harriman Institute at Columbia University. I'm Mashi Densaba Brenner. This episode was written and produced by me and edited by Ann Cooper. The music in the series is by Ivan Nebesny, who's currently in Lviv. We wish him, Olga, her family, the staff of KU Independent, and all the people of Ukraine safety and strength. The cover art is by Victoria Tentler Krylov. A huge thank you to Jordan Waller, Marko Andrejcik, and Nathan Schiller for their feedback on the episode. If you like the show, please subscribe, tell your friends, and leave us a review. That was an episode from Voices of Ukraine. Our thanks to Masha Yudinseva Brenner for chatting with us. And that's it for Foreign Policy Playlist. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe. And if you want to suggest a great podcast, you can email us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com. This show was produced by Simone Perez, Maria Jimena Aragon, Rob Sachs, and Rosie Julin. I'm Laura Rosbrock-Tellum. Thank you so much for listening. Till next week. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
it is a truth universally acknowledged that it is always the right time to read, talk, and think about Pride and Prejudice. But why is it this book that we universally acknowledge? Why has Pride and Prejudice lasted for over two centuries as the most famous romance novel of all time? This season of Hot and Bothered, award-winning journalist Lauren Sandler and me, Vanessa Zoltan, are looking closely at Pride and Prejudice, interviewing experts and trying to figure out what this book has taught generations of readers about love. Listen to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Acast.com.